This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, episode number 28. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, where we focus on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. One of the central issues facing nearly all authors today is discoverability, or to put it another way, how do readers find our books? My guest today, Christine Catherine Rush, began writing what she thought would be a few blog posts on the subject in late 2013. The response to the post from the authors who read her blog was so positive that she expanded the idea into a series that lasted for several months and finally compiled the series into a book titled Discoverability. So what goes into discoverability? As you'll hear in this interview, Everything from cover design and back cover material to genre selection, branding, marketing plans, pricing strategies, and how all of these things work together to help you achieve your goals as an author. When you're using price to goose interest, that's you being uh, confident in your work. You assume that once people try one, the first one is you know free or 99 cents, then they're going to try the rest of them. But you don't then goose the rest of them to get them to buy it. Um, you do only the first one just to keep them interested, but you need the product to back it up. Otherwise, again, you don't make a living. And that's really what you need to be looking at, is whether or not your price strategy will enable you to make a living. Chris has learned a great deal in her years as an author, a publisher, and a businesswoman. She believes sharing what she's learned is paying it forward. And she does that sharing through her blog, her nonfiction writing, her teaching, and thankfully for us on this episode of The Author Biz. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please let us know by heading over to iTunes and giving us a rating or a review. This past week, John L. Monk, the author of Kick, was kind enough to leave a review at iTunes. He said, I listened to a lot of writing, publishing podcasts, and I was pleasantly surprised to discover this one today. The interviewer doesn't ask a lot of basic stuff like what inspired you to write, Instead, he seems to carefully prepare his show ahead of time so that he has interesting and insightful questions. In this way, he's able to deliver a lot of great content at a lively pace. Very impressed. Well, John, if you're listening today, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Reviews on iTunes are as valuable to podcasters as reviews on Amazon are to authors. Everyone makes it more likely that others will be exposed to the work. You can also subscribe to this show via email by going to the AuthorBiz website at theauthorbiz.com and clicking the big green subscribe button. You'll also find the show notes for this episode, including links to everything we mention at theauthorbiz.com slash Chris, and that's Chris with a K. Now let's get on with the interview. My guest today is USA Today best-selling and multi-award-winning author Christine Catherine Rush. Chris writes in almost every genre, publishing best-selling science fiction and fantasy, award-winning mysteries, acclaimed mainstream fiction, controversial nonfiction, and the occasional romance. Her novels have made bestseller lists around the world, and her short fiction has appeared in 18 Best of the Year collections. 
She's also a longtime entrepreneur, a teacher, a publisher, an editor, and I know I'm leaving a bunch of things out, but I want to include this last one. She blogs prolifically on the subject of the publishing business at her website, chriswrites.com. Chris, welcome. It's an honor to have you as a guest on The Author Biz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. You wrote a series of posts on discoverability um, over the course of time and then compiled that together into a book called Discoverability. So that's really what we're going to be talking about tonight is discoverability. Let's talk initially about why you started writing about it. With blog posts, it's whatever happens you know, that week or that day or whatever strikes my fancy. And people kept pushing at me going, you know, we need, you need to talk about all this mountain, all these mountains of crap that other writers are (laughs) writing. You know, the stuff we write isn't crap, but the stuff that they write is. And so how do you get discovered in there? And I kept saying, well, just be patient, just do a few things. You'll get discovered. And then I realized that's not going to work. They actually need to have some guidelines to understand why some things used to work and don't work anymore and why some things are new and are working and why some things work for some authors but they don't work for other authors. And I figured, you know, two or three blog posts I'd be done. Well, it took me like six months and I wrote it out of order because I didn't have any plan. Mm -hmm. Well, I often write out of order anyway, but I didn't, you know, have an outline plan and and people would ask questions. That's the neat thing about a blog is it's very dynamic and and people come back and forth. And so people would ask questions and I'd realize, oh, they don't understand this because I didn't explain that. If you get the book, um, it's in order and you get the information in a way that makes it easier to digest some of the more controversial parts of it. But if you read the blog, which is still up for free on my site, which is out of order, you will see where some of the inspiration comes from, where some of the people get upset at me, where <laughs> you know we have back and forth. And I think the back and forth is very healthy, and I think it actually informs what I do, and it, I hope it informs what, some of they, what they do as well. As someone who read this while you were blogging it, it it was always educational to read the comments. And for people who read the book, and and the best way to read this is to read the book because it's all in order, it all makes sense, and there's a table of contents, and it just flows perfectly. But it's still fun to go back if there's something you're particularly interested in to your website, chriswrites.com and look up the discoverability posts and find that one chapter or that one post and read the comments because they are fascinating. And you're right. People do get mad at you. Oh, people. Those are the people I let through. Some people get so mad at me that they, they're just not civil. So I don't let those comments through. And then there are the trolls, of course, who then get their little friend trolls to come and, and yell at me, too. <laughs> Often I know I've hit something when I get trolls, because what that means is I hit an emotion. I hit something that really made them angry for a reason that is not logical, which usually means I've hit a myth or something that they really need to hang on to in order to continue doing what they're doing. And that's always intriguing to me. Because at that point, I kind of think, well, if they're feeling that way, then other people are maybe not to quite as nasty a degree, but they're feeling that way, too. So it's worth exploring. You and your husband, Dean Wesley Smith, both are myth busters in in terms of the writing business. And that's one of the things that I, I read his blog religiously as well. You take 
dramatically different approaches with with your blogs. Um, Yours is really tightly focused on business. Dean's is not, but you're both poking holes in the conventional wisdom of the publishing business fairly consistently. We've done that from the beginning, from when we've met each other. Um, Our first attempt at having a publishing company, Pulp House, which was quite successful until it wasn't, it was poking holes at the publishing industry because we'd ask questions. We, you know, people would say, "This now figure this twenty five years ago." Um, we'd say, "Why don't uh, science fiction magazines look like other magazines?" Well, you, you know, like like Red Book or Playboy or something. Well, we tried that. You tried that when? Well, we tried that in nineteen sixty three. Yeah, but it's not nineteen sixty three. So why isn't it working now? Well, nobody's tried it since then, or we wouldn't get any answer at all. And when that happened, then we we went on and said, okay, we're going to just try things. And every time we tried something new and innovative, people followed. If we told them we were going to try something new and innovative, they'd tell us it wouldn't work and here was why. But the reasons were just as bogus as they tried it in 1963 and it didn't work then. And so, you know, that's kind of our heritage. That's kind of the Mm -hmm. way we are. Mm-hmm. And we keep doing it. <laughs> I always look for what's behind the statement. And, in fact, that's my blog post this week, is there's just been a lot of statements in the in the trade publications about problems or m- numbers or whatever. And I can't find any anything to verify what these statements are saying. And that was a fascinating post. I mean, you think so deeply about this stuff. Let's, let's go back in time. Um, you have a long business history. I mentioned a few of the things that you do. I know you have a few publishing businesses. You also do other things. You own a retail business. Um, give us all a sense of what your business empire is like. <laughs> it sounds like an empire. Um, actually, we have four retail businesses. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Four, four retail stores. Uh, we're part owners of the publishing company. We have our own writing businesses. Um, we have three other corporations that do various different things and um, have many other businesses that we've started or haven't worked or have sold. Um, and it's just something that we do that doesn't seem like a lot of work, and yet it's work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you always seem to be working. Well, Yeah. Because it's interesting to me. It's not. I don't like the word "work" as it's used in America because it sounds. It's something people do in order to afford their real life. Well, work is my real life, and it's fun. It's what I would do when I'm playing. So if I don't have fun at it, it's not worth my time. You come at your interest in the publishing business honestly because you are a, a businesswoman, and you write very deeply, I mean really deeply, about business issues and the issues of publishing. Do you find that writing that deeply puts people off, or does it attract people, or does it just attract the people that are interested in in that kind of writing? I don't know. Since I blog about every aspect of traditional publishing, um, or of publishing, traditional publishing, indie publishing, um, writing, editing, you know, sales, all of that, and I've done almost all of that. 
Um, I get different audiences at different times. There are people who read the whole thing. And then there are like traditional writers, which is mostly who I've been writing for at the front part of this year. I'll be going to indie people later. Um, but you know, I have major New York times bestsellers who read what I do. Um, and, but they only read the traditional publishing side of, of it. I know that a number of people in New York publishing are now reading what I'm writing. Um, because they'll send me cryptic emails going, follow this trail. <laughs> I, love, I just love those. Um, and, you know, then the indie writers. So it's it's a constantly mixed group coming through. Okay. Um, then what I really love are the people who are the, the bloggers themselves, and they'll come on and they'll often their very first comment is, wow, this is long. <laughs> but I managed to get to the end of it. Because there's a rule in blogging that you should never blog more than 500 words. Well, obviously, I pay attention to that rule since most of mine are 3,000 words. Right. Um, and, you know, I just figure if you don't want to read it, don't read it. It's up there for free. Um, you can support it or you can not support it because I do have a donate button. But, you know, it's there. If you want to learn it, fine. If you don't, fine. I don't care. Um, it's up there. If I'm interested, I'm going to write about it. And I'm going to do the work anyway, whether or not people come to read it. All right. So let's let's dig into discoverability a little bit. Discoverability, as you so rightly point out early on in the book, is essentially marketing. And yes. it's letting people know that you have a book available for sale. I mean, we, we mysticize so much of this stuff. And that's really it. It's just letting people know that you have a book that's available. And if they want to buy it, they can. That's true. So there are lots of ways of doing that, and, and you break them down into different types of marketing, different things that authors might want to do. Um, you talk about passive marketing, um, active marketing, word of mouth, uh, things like that. Let's, let's start out by talking about passive marketing. What does that mean to you, and, and what should we as authors be doing to passively market our work? Well, if you're a writer who is traditionally published, most of the passive marketing is taken out of your hand. And by passive marketing, I mean the basic stuff. You put it in book form. You have a good cover on it. You make sure it's in the correct genre. Um, you make sure that the back cover copy is readable and intriguing and doesn't give things away. Um, if you're traditionally published, you often don't have the right to control that. And believe me, most writers shouldn't have the right to control it because they don't know what they're talking about. Um, but if you're indie publishing, you have to learn that yourself. If you're, you know, I use indie publishing rather than self because at a certain point you end up having to hire people to help you. So you're actually having a company. Um, and you need to do all of that passive stuff because that's what readers expect. They, I, I know a woman who, this is ten year, or five years ago when the um, uh, Kindle boom started up. She would put out her book. She didn't like covers on books, so she wouldn't put a cover on. So she would just put it out there with a title, and Amazon would slap some piece of art or something on there. And, you know, she was wondering why her books weren't selling. And it took us a while to convince her to put covers on her books. And gosh almighty, once she put covers on her books, they started selling. That's passive marketing. Knowing your genre, which is hard for writers, including me. I just had a discussion with WMG Publishing about what genre one of my books was in and, and was being argued down about what genre it was in. And they're probably right, not me. Um, so, you know, you need to have all of that in place before you go out and actually do what's active marketing, which is what everybody thinks of as marketing. 
Um, but the passive, I think you can't, you can't not do it. You have to do that. You have to do that little basic level, no matter what you're doing. You mentioned genre, and I I remember reading on a post of yours, I don't know when, I think this is something that you say from time to time, the whole idea that finding the genre for your work is not as easy as we think it is. And the first time I read that, I thought, that's crazy. You know, we all know, (laughs) we all know what we're writing. That's crazy. Until it came time to actually publish something myself. And then it's like, oh, is it this? Or people would ask me, what am I? Well, it's kind of a mystery. It's kind of suspense. It's kind of a thriller. What is it? <laughs> and, and then I started paying attention, and I began to understand exactly what you were saying. And you guys actually teach a course on that, right? Yeah, we do. Just so you can get sort of a handle on it. The problem is that as a writer, when you get into the story itself, you're in the, in the weeds. Um, you know, you know there's a romance and you know that there's a mystery and you know that, you know, there's a, a fantastic element. But you don't really have a sense of the overall project because really if you did, you would never finish a novel. Because they're just, it's a long journey. Um, so it's hard to step back and actually figure out what somebody coming at it fresh would experience. Because you're not coming at it fresh. And often that's where trusted readers come in. It's not so that they're going to tell you what's wrong with the book. They're going to tell you their reaction to it so that you can learn what it actually is. So, yeah, genre is really, really hard. I don't care who you are and how long you've been working as a writer or how long you've been working in publishing. Figuring out genre is really probably one of the most difficult tasks a writer-publisher has to do. And a a lot of what we've just been talking about, writing, well, cover design is one thing, but writing the copy that would go into Amazon to describe the book or the back cover or whatever, however you're publishing the book, if you're self-publishing it, um, all of this falls under the term of metadata. Is that uh, not the cover, obviously, but um, these other things that we do, picking categories, picking keywords, writing that description, that's all metadata. Yep. And that sounds like such a mysterious and confusing word, but it's, it's really just doing these few things correctly to at least give yourself a chance. Well, it's so that readers can find you. And how do readers find you? I have no idea. I mean, none of us do. Not even people who are doing this for a living in New York know how readers find you. Because it's a different path every time. And if you think about it from your perspective as a reader, you know, the book you're reading right now, how did you find out about it? Did you read the guy's previous book? And if that's the case, how did you find out about the first book of theirs that you read? You know, it's always a little journey on how you get there. And so you're just kind of making, when you do the metadata, which the I think the better word for all that is just the information about the book. If you think about it, like old library index cards, that's what you're doing. You're doing the same thing that we're on library index cards. What's the book about and where would it fit in the Dewey Decimal System? Um, And, you know, as a kid or even as an adult, when you walk into the library or the bookstore, you walk to a section and then you Mm -hmm. go to the alphabetical part of that section or you, and as you're walking by, you may see something else and you pick it up. And that's how it works on online bookstores too. And that's what you're setting up with these keywords. And if you keep that in mind, if you're keep in mind, you're not doing it to be accurate. You're doing it to help people find what they're looking for. And the other thing you have to think about whenever you're doing all of this metadata and passive marketing stuff is if you identify this book you wrote as a romance and it doesn't have a happily ever after ending, which all romances do, are you going to piss off the readers? If the answer is yes, 
you don't market it as a romance. You've got to, when you start putting all this information out there, you've got to put on your reader hat instead of your writer hat and think, how would I react to this as a reader? And if you think, ooh, that would upset me, don't do it. How important from your perspective, you've been doing this for a long time. I was going to say forever, but we'll just say for a long time. <laughs> no, <laughs> how, but it has been a long time. <laughs> how, how important are covers? Because when you were talking about this, you know, going to the bookstore, in my own mind, I was going to the bookstore, I was going to the mystery section, and I'm looking alphabetically, but I'm mostly looking at the spines. And I'm looking at the author's last name and the color, because for some reason or other, covers with a particular cover color have always appealed to me. Um, mm-hmm. So even the spine way back then was really important. So how, you know, obviously the, the woman who was publishing books without a cover <laughs> was a lot more important <laughs> for her. But how much time should we spend uh, on cover design and things like that? Quite a bit. And if you're uh, not really visual, um, you, you're going to need help with this. And you're not going to need help from your aunt's cousin, Millie, whatever. You're going to need help from a graphic designer who understands books. Because it really is a difficult thing to, dis- to do a good cover. Everybody can do it a good enough cover, but you really want the best it can possibly be. Um, if you're doing it yourself, you're going to want to see what other covers in the same genre that you're working at are doing and at least try to copy them so that, not literally copy them, but you know, get the same sense as they are so that readers aren't going to know what they're going to get. Um, covers are important. They're important most of the time in three ways. The first way is if they're really right, people are going to run to them and just go, wow, I want to buy that book. If they're good enough, which is what I was just talking about, it's not going to really affect the sale one way or another. They're going to people are going to pick it up. They go, "Oh, there's a woman with her back to you, looking over her shoulder, holding a sword. Must be an urban fantasy." <laughs> Fine, that's all you needed to communicate. Then they're going to, if they like urban fantasy, they're going to read the back cover, and you're fine. Covers also are become really important when they're awful, not because they're going to sell the book, but because they're going to draw attention for being awful. <laughs> <laughs> and the one that comes to mind is the Roald Dahl cover that some, I can't remember who the current publisher was, but it came out about six months ago. It was for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And it looked like a, lo- a cover for Lolita. It was awful. And the uh, the cover designer was so proud of it that they put it on their Facebook page and said, what do you people think? And, oh, wow, did they hear what they thought? It didn't increase sales of the book, but for quite a while, everybody was talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> All right, let's, let's talk about branding, which is another section of the book in, in passive marketing. Uh, branding ourselves as authors, branding ourselves within genres. What's most important? First, you have to brand the genre which is what I was talking about, the woman with her back and the right. sword. You mm-hmm. need to at least be there. But if you're writing series, which so many people are now, um, the series has to look like the the current book of the series has to look like the previous books of the series, but not so much that people think they already bought it. But it has to look like part of the series. Um, on uh, Tellereads right now, there's a review of the book Discoverability, and afterward, um, the author interviewed me, and um, she used the covers from my St. Martin's Chris Nelscott books to, because sh- I recommended her to show what is 
kind of like anti-branding. It's a mystery series. Mm-hmm. And they um, they could never figure out, St. Martin's Press could never figure out how to market it. So there are six covers, very different. None of them look like this part of this mystery series at all. You can't tell that they're related to each other in any way. And that's a big fail. Because if you're writing a series, you absolutely have to have each book look like the other ones so that the readers go, hey, look, it's a new Chris Nelscott book in the Smokey Dalton series. I want that. Because there will be Chris Nelscott books in a different series at some point, and they're going to want to be able to tell the difference. Um, author marketing, yeah, you want to, you kind of want to do that with genre and author name. So I write science fiction. My science fiction book should look a little different from my mystery books. My mystery books should look different from my romance books, but they should it all look like Christine Catherine Rush books. That's why I tell you, you're probably going to need a graphic designer at some point. <laughs> now, one of, the, one of the points you make in, in the Discoverability book is that you, for a variety of reasons, chose to write under different names. And you said that if you had to do it all over again, that you would just write under your own name and brand the, the different series or the different genres differently to make it obvious to people Uh, that they were different. Can you sort of expand on that a little bit? The reason I ended up writing in different names was because of the way that traditional publishing worked and still works, and that is because uh, they they, um, look at the numbers, theoretically, um, of the way your book sold before, but each genre sells differently. So romance sells huge numbers, and science fiction sells tiny numbers. And if I went back and forth between romance and science fiction, my science fiction books would sell better, but my romance books, based on the numbers out of New York, would sell worse because, you know, romance sells 3,000, I'm making up numbers, romance <laughs> sells 30,000 copies every time they go out, uh, science fiction sells five, so, you know, when I, if they looked at my previous book and it was science fiction, not my previous romance, but my mm-hmm. previous science fiction, they would say, wow, she only sold 5,000 copies, that book tanked, and not going, oh, it's science fiction, so there was no way in the way that New York and traditional publishing worked, I could keep the same name for the different genres. So I developed three different names. Well, I developed many different names, but three primary names. And that was so long ago, I'm stuck with them. Because I'm mostly indie publishing now, at least on the book level, I still do short fiction traditionally, um, it's easier to set the branding, and I don't really care. I'm not going to have trouble, <laughs> you know, with getting somebody to uh, buy and publish a romance novel after I've published a science fiction novel. So I just, my readers are my readers are my readers, and they're just going to pick up whatever they're going to pick up. Now, not, that's not to say every reader is going to buy every book. I'm the reader who loves. Um, Barbara Michaels' books and hates Elizabeth Peters' books, and they're both written by Barbara Mertz. <laughs> so, you know, I knew how to, to tell the difference between the two of them, and if Barbara Mertz had published the Barbara Michaels' books, which were gothic, romantic suspense novels, um, as Barbara Mertz, and, and just had, you know, the gothic covers on them, and then had the lighter Elizabeth Peters' covers set in Egypt differently, I would have known. Avoid the Elizabeth, the Barbara Mertz covers with the Egypt on the cover, and go for the Barbara Mertz books that are dark and gloomy, and it would have been easier. And that's 
what I would have done for my uh, readers now, but I don't have that choice because I'm locked into mm-hmm. where I've been. Having a long career is beneficial and harmful <laughs> in equal, equal parts. Okay. Another one of the things that I find fascinating about both you and Dean is what you have written on pricing and and the fact that you actually put it into practice. One of the things that you make very, very clear in the discoverability book is that if you're going to discount, have a reason for it, have a valid reason for it other than I just want to sell a bunch of books. Um, Reasons being things like it's the first of a series or you've got a new book coming out or things like that. But um, give us sort of a broad overview of your sense of pricing in today's world? Well, pricing's no different than it's always been. Um, Pricing, readers and writers seem to think that they understand pricing, and they really don't. I mean, there are entire college business courses and master's classes on price and huge, long economic studies. Retail businesses have known about price for a long time and how price impacts everything else. Um, you know, perception of quality, it, it impacts whether people are going to buy a certain product. There are a whole bunch of things that go on with price that are very subtle, that has nothing to do with free or 99 cents or anything. It just has to do with price. With pricing, you have to understand that you're you're doing something that has been around as long as we've had retail. And you need to start thinking about what you're doing when you price your books as what you're doing is a retail business. There are certain things that work with price, like discounting and everything else, when you have a lot of product. And that's why I'm using terms like product instead of books right now. Because when you have a lot of product and you have a lower-priced version, it's kind of like those things in the grocery store when they give you a little bit of food to see if you're going to buy something else. It's a loss leader, and they're they're trying to get you into the store. They're trying to get you to sample a new product. They're trying to get you to think about food in a different way, and they're giving you something for free whether you want it or not. That's the interesting thing about free stuff is that most people don't want free stuff. Witness what happened with iTunes and U2 when they gave everybody who was on iTunes and had an iTunes account a free U2 album. People got mad. And you don't always want that stuff. Price is a real weapon. And so, you know, doing it by your gut or doing it by your sense or doing it just because you would buy things that way isn't valid. You need to do it for a bunch of different scientific reasons. And the first thing you need to do, and this is what I didn't do when I first blogged about this and it was a mistake, is you need to understand that there are different types of readers. There are some readers who only buy for price because they're poor or because they, you know, they believe price is the most important thing. There are some readers who only buy for quality. Those are the collectors. They're, and they never read the books. There are the people who only buy certain authors. There are people who only buy on hardcover. And you need to be able to appeal to the broad range of readers and you need to know who you're appealing to. So when you go at only 99 cents and only free, you're only appealing to the discount readers, and you'll never make it up into the other categories of readers who buy for other reasons. And that's a problem. But if you understand that price varies according to a whole bunch of different things, and readers follow all of those things, and readers are different animals per author, 
with price. By, by that I mean there are some authors they'll only buy if they're cheap. There are some authors they'll only they'll buy the minute they hear a new book is out. There are you know people that will stand in line forever to get a hardcover by so somebody who will only buy somebody else when they're for, you know quote free. I don't like using the word buy with free, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you need to you need to think about all of these things as you're pricing and make these choices. And I'm really very specific in the book about pricing because I want people to understand that it is both a tool and a weapon. And if it's like a weapon, if you use it wrong, you're going to end up hurting yourself probably more than anybody else. It's funny that you mentioned that specific line because it's something that I plucked out and, and wrote down in here. And one of the great things about reading on, is a, uh, reading on a Kindle is you can see what other people have highlighted. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked that people weren't highlighting that sentence. And there were actually three sentences. Pricing is both a tool and a weapon. The tool should be used properly. The weapon should be used sparingly. I just thought that was brilliant. Thank you. Now, one of the things that I have seen as a reader is that I've been trained by authors that they will release a new book in a series, a book, a series that I enjoy, and that if I buy it today, it's going to be $5, and if I buy it in two weeks, it's going to be $0.99. Cents. Mm-hmm. And I'm a fan of their work. I feel like an absolute creep for not buying it for $5, but I know they're going to offer it for a dollar in two mm-hmm. weeks. So I wait sometimes, and I hate myself for doing it, but I saved $4. And if they didn't do that, I would pay $5 as soon as it came out every single time. That's right. But what I love about what you just said to me is you said, I wait, and then you added the word sometimes, because there are some authors you're going to spend $5 for no matter what, even though you know they're going to be $0.99 in three weeks. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody hopes they're that author, but you're only that author for some readers. You're never that author for all readers. I don't, not even J.K. Rowling is that author for all readers. So you can never be that author for all readers. And that's part of the problem. And yeah, the people who are constantly discounting, they're hurting themselves. It's just, and I can point you to a hundred studies <laughs> from retail. This is why too many sales are a problem in retail, because people will wait for the lowest price if they know it's coming and when they know it's coming. That's why on Black Friday, back when Black Friday was actually a big deal and people knew electron to be on sale, mm-hmm. they um, would line up at the stores at 6 a.m. because they knew they had this chance of getting a television set for really cheap. Now that's not quite as common, but you know there are people that when you're high, you're shopping for a big ticket item or any item, if you know it's going to go on sale in July or May or whatever, you're going to wait until that time period to buy it. And for a lot of people, books are a luxury item, and they can't spend a lot of money on it, so they're not going to buy it immediately. They're going to buy it when they can afford it. And if you are on ask you know doing constant sales then it's going to they're they're going to wait until they know you're going to put it on sale. Now you have you outlined a pricing strategy. I mean it's strategy is a big word for something like this. But basically your pricing philosophy was the new book should be the most expensive. The mm-hmm. backlist should be slightly less expensive and if you're going to have a new book in a series, then you might want to do a little bit of discounting on an earlier book in the series and tie the two together to drive sales of the new book. Do I, am I paraphrasing that correctly? Yeah, 
you, you've got that. That's exactly right. So it is a pricing strategy. It, it's not a, well, I feel like I'm going to run a sale this week because I'd really like to have my Amazon ranking go up so that I can tell people that I ranked in this particular category. It's a strategy because you're running a business, um, essentially a retail business, and you have a long-term plan. Yeah. My long-term plan is to make a living. <laughs> it's that simple. If you want your business to succeed, you need a long-term plan. And you need to be thinking not just about this week, but you need to be thinking about five years from now and 10 years from now. And if you're constantly discounting, you're going to make it really hard to make a, make a living at publishing. I was talking to a woman who... Um, has a book in one of those nine books for 99 cent bundles. Right. And they had sold, oh, I can't remember the number, 65,000 copies, I think. And they were going to plow the money back into advertising, which is actually a smart move if it's a limited term thing. But they weren't doing it limited term. And so they got tired of plowing the money back into advertising. They started splitting it up. And for an entire four-month period or something where they had that huge number of sales, she made $750. And they okay, my goal in life is to make a living at what I do. You you can't live for four months on seven hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> you just can't. So when you're starting to do these kinds of and I like your word strategy, when you do pricing strategies, you're thinking long term. Um uh, you'll if you know, your listeners look at what we're starting to do now with my Retrieval Artist series. The first book came out last week, um, not in the series. We're doing a, a, a saga within the series, which is Anniversary Day. It's eight books. So the first two books came out in uh, uh, 2011 and 2012 or 2013, 2012-2013, I'm not sure which. Anyway, and then I was going to write what I thought was the last book and expanded to six. And I realized as a reader, I would get really mad if um, these books kept getting spaced out over, you know, six years or three years or whatever. And so I decided we need to have them all come out in the next six months. Um, Mitch meant I had to finish them first. But it's allowing us to do a lot of pricing strategy stuff. Mm-hmm. We will do a discount on the first book in the uh, entire Retrieval Artist series, not in the saga, but in the entire series to get people in because we hope people will be talking about it. And that'll be probably be in sometime in February. It'll probably be 99 cents. And somewhere along the way, a year or so from now, there'll probably be some bundling of the books where they can people can get the entire series for uh, one price, or the entire saga for one price. Um, and there will be some other pricing things along the way, and maybe some, some special benefits for people who followed all the way along. Um, and it's all about you know, keeping the momentum going and everything else. But people have asked me, they say, why don't you just put the first book in the saga for free right now? And I'm thinking, well, because right now the first book in the saga is selling almost the equivalent of, at its regular price, of the new book because of people who are waiting for these books to come out to even start. Hmm. And so why would I, you know, take $4 off of each book sale when people are willing, as you said, to pay for them right now? When the interest is the most high, that's when I will keep price at where I feel it should be. And then when interest starts to wane, then you use price to goose interest. And that's – when you're using price to goose interest, 
that's you being uh, confident in your work. You assume that once people try one, the first one is, you know, free or 99 cents, then they're going to try the rest of them. But you don't then goose the rest of them to get them to buy it. Um, you do only the first one just to keep them interested. But you need the product to back it up. Otherwise, again, you don't make a living. And that's really what you need to be looking at is whether or not your price strategy will enable you to make a living. And it's funny, the number of things that we use instead of money to make ourselves feel like we're doing well, whether it's likes on a post or visits to a web page or to a web post or an Amazon ranking of a free book. Um, there are any number of things that we can do to make ourselves feel like we're doing well, but at the end of three months, to, to use your friend's story, you have $750 in the bank. That's right. So money is a much better way of keeping track. Well, money, I never write for money. Um, I know I get accused of that a lot, but I don't. Um, I write because I wouldn't, I would do it for free. I mean, I'm just like every other writer. It's what I love to do. Um, But I would rather be writing than anything else. So if I look at the logic of I'd rather be writing than anything else, that means I need to be making a living at it. And I would like to make a comfortable living as opposed to, you know, scrape by off $750 in three months. And so in order to make a comfortable living, I have to make sensible decisions about things like pricing and what I will sell things for if I'm going into the traditional market, which is also about price. You know, what advance will you accept and all of that. Um, And so if I look at it that way, then that's my bottom line. Can I make a living doing it this way? Yes, no. If the answer is no, I don't do it that way. Um, and again, that's long-term thinking, which is hard. Your analysis of what we do to make ourselves feel better is absolutely right on. And what writers have to end up learning is to make themselves feel better by telling themselves stories, getting the stories on the page, finishing the story, and getting it published. Once it's published, it's out there in the world, you let it go. And you start feeling better again from doing the work. And that's one of my favorite things that, that you and Dean both teach um, I, I, I'll butcher the name, um, but the rules, Heilemann's rules. Heinlein. He, okay. And, and one of the, one of the rules is finish it and get it out there, which is so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the hardest thing writers do, especially if they're brought up through the MFA system or the creative writing system, because we're taught to tinker, but you know, no other Imagine if a surgeon kept operating on somebody and going, uh, yeah, I'm not done yet. I'm not done. <laughs> you know, nobody had ever leaves surgery. Um, at a certain point, you just have to let it go. And you have to say, okay, I'm done with this one. I want to move on to the next. And it's different for every writer, but, you know, you should end up with a system that allows you to let go rather than tinker. Because tinkerers don't make money and have make livings at it. Um, people who actually finish things do. All right, one last thing on passive marketing, and that's author websites. What does a good website contain? It needs to be, a good website needs to be static um, or active, either way. Static meaning it just needs to have information. It needs to tell you who the author is, what else they've written. If they're writing in a series, you need to know the order of the series and um, what the next book coming out is. Now, my website is not a great example of <laughs> good author websites. This is a do what you, your wa- what your I website's evolving you. right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's constantly evolving, but I, I have an extremely active website, and I'm kind of not willing to make some of the changes I should. Um, 
But if you look at my Christine Grayson website or my Chris Nelscott website or the retrievalartist.com website, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. They're just there to answer questions, basic reader questions. If you finish a book, as if a reader finishes one of your books and the reader wants to know what's next, the website should answer that question. If you think of it that way, you're golden. And you need a contact me button. I can't tell you how many Hollywood people contact me, how many literary, uh, how many uh, translators contact me, how many other publishers from overseas contact me through the contact button. It's just basic. Just contact me. You blog prolifically. You blog about publishing. And, and you talk about your writing, and, and you talk about what you read, which is a monthly post that I absolutely love. I have gotten so many fabulous book recommendations from your monthly This Is What I've Been Reading post. I thank you for that. No, thank you. Most people, most writers, fiction writers in, in particular, don't have a clue what they should write about if they're going to have a blog. Um, you give an example of someone in your book who takes a pretty simple approach to a weekly blog. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure. Which one? Okay, the cat guy. Oh, yeah, he takes his photos of his cats, and he does this on Google Plus, too. It's just wonderful. Every Friday, it's called his cat blog, and um, he has pictures of his cats, and he has funny little captions about them, and it's it's wonderful. They're beautiful pictures and they're funny little captions. And even if people aren't interested in the work, if they're interested about cats, they go and see it. He doesn't write about cats. He writes science fiction. Um, and he has little ads for his books running down the side. But, you know, he just does these cat pictures. And I don't know how many readers he's gotten from them, but I'll wager quite a few. And it's fresh content on the website. Even though it's cat pictures and, and some captions, it's fresh content. It's a reason to go back. If you are a reader of his, then there's a reason to go back to the website from time to time and just check in and see what's going on. Another thing that was interesting that you wrote in the book was that because of you following this guy and maybe writing uh, about him in one of the discoverability posts, you were approached to write a post on a pet blog of some type, and you wound up getting all this new traffic to your site. I did. I have now a lot of cat bloggers and people who read my stuff because it has cat. I write about cats. I live with cats. Um, then they show up in my fiction all the time. And um, I mentioned that somebody who was a cat blogger read it and then said, oh, you write about cats. Let me, let me do some writing about what you do. And now my work is getting reviewed on cat blogger websites, <laughs> cat bloggers who read fiction, you know, so cats in fiction, basically. Who knew? I didn't know that existed until this, this happened. And I'm finding all, there are all these, there are nooks and crannies on the internet of people who have interest in this or that. And it's amazing. I mean, there's a, um, a blogger who blogs, um, primarily about physics and how physics works in science fiction and everything else, which I've ended up reading because, and I started reading it because he ended up reviewing one of my books, which was okay, thank heavens. <laughs> I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, but, you know, his take is very fascinating. It's kind of like what Neil deGrasse Tyson did with the movie Gravity, but he does it, this guy does it for books. In your opinion, should fiction writers blog or not blog? <laughs> I think fiction writers should blog if they want to, and if they don't want to, they shouldn't. And That's if why they I have a static website. If they want to blog, does it make a difference what they blog about? Should they? In, th I'm, I'm going to make about, the assumption that we don't need we don't need another hundred thousand blogs on writing. 
well, if that's what interests them, then they should blog about it. And if it's not, then they should blog about what interests them. Some of the best bloggers I've read are the ones who blog about, like, um, there are costumers who write historical fiction, and they blog about the clothing. There's fascinating stuff. You know, um, this guy with his cat blog is wonderful. Um, there are people who blog about helicopters, and they write about, you know, they write military fiction, and then they blog about helicopters, and they're and it's really wonderful. And and I, the the assumption used to be that if you write about something non-writing related or not related to your writing, what you're actually your books are about, then nobody's going to read your books. And I, my own personal anecdotal experience is that's not true. Um, and. The more writers I talk to, the more I'm finding out that's not true. Once people find out that you write something else, they're going to sample. And mm-hmm. then if they like the sample, they're going to keep reading. They, not everybody's going to like the sample, but they're going to give it a shot. The last part, well, towards the end of the Discoverability book, you talk about word of mouth and the value of word of mouth. And this is the way the word has always spread about books, products of all types. You know, we buy a product, we like it, we think our friends would like it, so we tell them. Um, how do we encourage or can we encourage positive word of mouth? You can't encourage word of mouth. You can't encourage positive word of mouth. Um, the only way you can have positive word of mouth is to do the very best that you could possibly do. Um, but you, you're not in control of what people say. You're just, you just put it out there for them. For example, um, let me go back to my Chris Nelscott books. St. Martin's Press, the, 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 I'm a white woman, and the uh, protagonist of the Chris Nelscott books is a black detective in 1968, which caused all kinds of fits at St. Martin's Press. They didn't care that I wrote about aliens or anything else, but when I wrote about <laughs> black people, they just, they had fits, and they didn't know how to market the book. And so the books kind of languished because... Because I was white, St. Martin's refused to market the books in the black community, figuring that people would be offended or something. I have no idea. Um, So when I got the rights reverted to those books, I I said, you know, the first place these need to be marketed is the African-American community and African-American bookstores because nobody's read them there. And there is a... uh, 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 a group out of Texas called Cush City, and they market African American books, and they market them to um, uh, book groups. And I thought, well, let's just put a flyer out there because you can through Cush City. Let's just put a flyer out there and see if the um, book groups are going to be interested. And they slowly are, and that's building word of mouth because you have five people in a room discussing a book, and you know. I have no idea. I'm never in that room. If three people like the book and two people hate it, or if they feel it, but they're going to have a discussion about it. And then it's going to provoke other discussions. And then they're slowly, and now they're going to be reviewed and everything else. And now there are some reviews on Goodreads and there are some things happening. And we're doing that kind of targeted marketing, which is actually aimed at word of mouth. Book groups are hmm. aimed at word of mouth. Libraries are aimed at word of mouth. Um, if you can, if you're lucky enough to ask to be part of a library organization where they, you know, pe- they ask people to read your book and then you can come and talk. Do it because that's how word of mouth gets started. They, the key is they have to read the book. All right, now I'm, I'm going to tell a quick story and then we'll evolve into the next part of the discussion. I am 58 years old now. And at 55, I decided I wanted to write. I'd never, I, a lifetime reader, 
something that I've always wanted to try was to learn how to write. So I, of course, like everyone who thinks they can write, sat down and started writing. And in a very brief period of time, I realized I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I went out and started looking for books. And I bought some books, and I did a lot of different things, and I found myself not really getting any better, just kind of spinning around in circles. And then I came across these courses that uh, you and Dean offer through, I think it's through, is it through WMG Publishing? Yes. Okay. I I came across these courses, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take one. You offered a short story course. I, I don't remember how much it was. It wasn't very much. And I took that course, and it was a revelation. It was just video, just you talking to me and explaining things about short stories and, you know, a lot of history, a lot of the things that you had done, story structure, uh, but it all made sense to me. And so I started taking more courses and I took several of Dean's courses. You have things sort of batched together in groups that you can take three at a, not three at a time, but one after another, and they all fit together. I learned more from the courses that I've taken from you guys that I've learned in 30 books that I've read. And so let's talk for a minute about the genesis behind the idea for the courses and the kinds of things that you teach, because it seems like it's everything. Oh, well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for the kind words. I'm glad that the, the there are workshops and then there are lectures and you the short story one that you saw of mine was a lecture mm-hmm. um, and th- I think that was a fifty dollar lecture um, and you can watch it as many times as you want what Dean and I have always taught um, and our theory was we had so many great teachers and you can't teach your teachers in ways that seem obvious I mean you, the thing about teaching is you're always teaching your teachers but you don't know what you're teaching them. Um, but, you know, we couldn't pay them back in that way. We could only pay forward. And so we've taught along. We used to do something called the Chris and Dean Show where we go around the country and teach people about the business of writing and, and that sort of thing. Um, and thank heavens for the Internet because we don't feel like traveling as much. <laughs> so we do these courses. Um, and it's designed for the writers that we used to be, if that makes sense to you. When we, when I was living alone in Wisconsin and just starting out, and I only knew one other writer, um, and I didn't have any other information, what did I want to know? When Dean was living in Boise, Idaho, by himself, and only knowing one other writer who was at the same level, um, what did he want to know? And that's what these courses are starting at, but then they also go up levels so that Oh, yeah, okay, you've learned how to write a short story. Now, how do you write a better short story? Or how do you write a novel? Or how do you write a series? Um, yeah, you understand this part of business, but how does you know that other part of business work? What is a character, really? What is your voice, really? Um, it, it's all in-depth. And, and how do you add depth to your writing? Everybody says, oh, your writing needs depth. But what does that mean, exactly? And we actually work on that level. It's it's So we have courses that are the macro level, the bigger ones, and a lot of those are lectures because there's no need for interaction. And then there's the workshop level, which often works on the micro level. And there is interaction. There's homework involved that Dean and I both look at. Um, Dean is usually the face of that because Dean has this ability to take something really complex and make it seem real simple. He breaks it down quickly and easily, and I'm not as good at that. So he often does a lot of the teaching. I'm there behind the scenes looking at 
the stuff people have written, coming up with the assignments, which are often evil, um, <laughs> yes. and figuring out, you know, what's going to help people and how they're going to help them improve. And um, we're a good team that way. And I'm glad to hear some feedback that the uh, courses work. I am just astonished at how far ahead of other writers who started when I did. Um, the things that I know that they don't know just from taking some of these courses. And, and you offer courses on everything. I, I have heard a former guest of this show, um, Joanna Penn, talked about taking your productivity course, which I have not taken yet, but her writing has gotten quite a bit faster since she took that course, and she gives you guys the credit for that. Well, she also did the work. See, that's the thing. Yes. There are an awful lot of people who take the courses and just listen and don't do the, the actual work mm-hmm. to do the, 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 the homeworks and the learning. When you take what's in the homework and you apply it, then you're taking on the burden of a lot of the learning and, and you actually get a lot out of it. The productivity course is tough. Um, and I don't mean tough in that the workload is tough, but it makes you ask some questions of yourself of, you know, from the basics of how do I spend my day to what am I really afraid of? If I don't do X, am I afraid that people are going to come running up down my door and yell at me for not doing X? Um, and is that getting in the way of my writing? And once you answer those questions, you figure out, oh, I have this wide amount of space here that I could actually write in that I wasn't using, or actually my life needs me to do this, so I'm going to do that, and how do I work my writing around it? Well, the courses have been a brilliant help to me, um, and, and you and Dean have both, just the, your writing, your generosity through the years, just cranking this material out and allowing us to, and I shouldn't say that. When I say cranking out the material, you're going to kill me, and I, 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 I made a note not to say that. And um, for people who read your blog, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But there was a blog post a couple weeks ago about people who use words like cranking things out. But you're very prolific when it comes to writing in public. And um, you're obviously very prolific when it comes to writing your novels, too, which is a completely separate skill. But you guys produce a great deal of content, and you let us look over your shoulders, and you let us learn from you. And you do that for free. I mean, we're, we're allowed to do that for free, and then we can donate if we want. We can take courses. We can buy your books. There are all these other things we can do. But I, like so many people that are familiar with your work, started just looking over your shoulder, reading your blog posts. And I thank you for that, for for years of it. I thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for saying that. Yeah, I mean, there are people out there who can't afford to pay for some of this knowledge, and and why shouldn't they just get it? Um, And then there are people, you know, that feel like they need to to pay for whatever comes through. Um, You know, our goal isn't as I said before, it's really not to make money. It's to give back and to pay forward. And that's what we do. And we enjoy it. And also what I had said kind of in passing, um, as teachers, we learn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we learn from our students. We learn from the questions you ask. We learn from the approaches that you take. And often a lot of sharing goes on. You know, I just uh, to, uh, 
published the blog today, and I've gotten a whole bunch of emails with a bunch of links to various places I'd never seen before. So I'm learning stuff from people, and I get a lot from that, too. So that's that's really nice. Well, today we've been talking primarily about your new book. Well, not new anymore. It was published in October, November, Discoverability. I highly recommend this book. It's available at Amazon. Uh, it's available everywhere because that's something that you guys do. You make your books available wherever they can be bought. The best way, we've mentioned your website a couple of times, but what's the best way for people to follow your work, Chris? Um, I have a newsletter, um, and it's on the website, and they can sign up for that, or they can just stop in at the website. I try to keep up with announcing what's new at least once a week if if it warrants it. Um, so then you can keep up that way. Um, I don't expect everybody to keep up with everything all the time because there's always something new. Um, so, you know, just... And if if you can't find what you're looking for, email me. There is a contact form on the website. <laughs> and there are two different uh, URLs for you. One is your full name, uh, Christine Catherine Rush, and the other is Chris with a K Rights dot com. Yes, and that's, that's a little right. easier to find. That's easier to find because there's so many ways to misspell my name. Oh, there are. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the AuthorBiz podcast at www.theauthorbiz.com. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mention, just check out the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site, or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Please join us again next week for another informative episode. <laughs>